0: Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, I want you to turn to Romans 16. And I'm going to read to you. um, Actually, I want you to turn to Romans 1 first. And then I want you to go to Romans 16. I'm going to read you two Uh, the two bookends of this great letter to the church. I want you to see if you you see the connections um, in this. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 1 and going through to verse 7, it says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. "...concerning his Son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ." To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now turn to Romans 16 and go to verse 25. Again, the Apostle Paul ends the book with this. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel, And the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. It's an amazing thing to realize that there is not a word in Scripture that is out of place. There's not a word in Scripture that doesn't have some uh, meaning for our life as Christians. And what I find amazing about the bookends of the book of Romans is that he says, I've come to you to proclaim what the prophets of old have said, and that is a message of peace. And he ends the book by saying, And it is done. And it is finished. I have taught you, I have shared with you the very message that brings about peace, that brings about hope, that brings about life. The message is this. Jesus Christ was crucified, dead, and buried according to the scriptures. And on the third day, he rose again according to the scriptures. He was known to be the Son of God because of his resurrection. Anybody who doesn't like the idea of that resurrection misses the idea that Jesus is not who he says he is unless he's alive, church, okay? So Jesus raises from the dead. He fulfills the mystery of ages past. People for eons of time, church, have been scratching their heads going, where is this going? What are we doing here? And Jesus comes in and he says, this is where it's going. And he raises from the grave. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. He pours out his Spirit on all flesh, and he now is in charge. Amen. All authority. Did you did you catch this in the scripture? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Christ Jesus. Who's winning now? <laughs> Jesus is winning now. Who's reigning now? Jesus. It's not your problem. It's not your uh, circumstances, and it sure ain't the devil. That's reigning now. Jesus, all authority has been given to him. And he is reigning. What is amazing about these bookends is that it, the scripture tells us that what is finished is that the gospel has been delivered. Salvation has come. And Jesus has called us to walk in peace. He's called us to walk in unity. And he's called us to walk in obedience. Peace, unity, and obedience. Those are important, important bookends to this magnificent letter, right? Peace, unity, and obedience. Oh my goodness, this is an amazing thing. This morning, what I want to talk to you about, uh, I want to talk to you very candidly. I want to talk to you just as as straightforward as Nathan can be uh, on a couple of ideas. I want to talk to you about unity. I want to talk to you about division. I want to talk to you about a fancy word called orthodoxy which just means the right thing, uh, the, the system of belief that is true, that is right, uh, as well as allowing the text of Scripture to speak for itself. And that's actually a principle that I want to get to you, get to. That we need to allow God's Word to speak for itself. We do not need to keep forcing our agendas in God's Word. Amen? We need to let it speak for itself. Last week, I, I stressed the idea that God's desire... Uh, for unity. And uh, God's desire for unity is great. It's good and it's pleasing, right? And he has a serious disdain for division. In particular, he has a disdain for those who cause division. The book of Proverbs tells us that those who sow discord are an abomination to God. Take a deep breath. An abomination to God and are the objects of his hatred. That's pretty strong rhetoric, isn't it? Yes, we serve a God of love, but we also serve a God of justice, okay? So God, God does not like the divisive person. He actually hates the divisive person, but we, what we learned, and the reason for this bold language, is that a divisive people are not the people of God. That's why God hates them. A person who is not of God is the divisive person. You can read that for yourself in Romans 16, verse 18. They are the true definition of what we call a heretic. How many of you know that word? How many of you have said that word to somebody? Anyway, okay, well, we'll talk later. But the idea is that this idea of a heretic is properly understood as somebody who causes division. But as I've shared in the past, we have to make an important distinction between a divisive person and somebody who is simply wrong. What fun. We ought to make the distinction between somebody who's divisive and somebody who's simply wrong. In other words, holding to an unorthodox view does not make a person a heretic or divisive. Are unorthodox ideals a problem? Yes, of course they're a problem, absolutely. But it's sowing division with those unorthodox views that the Bible says is the real problem. Titus chapter 3 verses 10 and 11 tell us that we are to warn a divisive person once, we're to warn them a second time. There is a measure of grace in the warning one and warning two. But after a second time, we are to have nothing to do with such a one. Romans chapter 16 verse 17 kind of adds on to this principle and says, not only are you to divide from these people who are divisive, but you're to keep an eye on them. Why? Because a divisive person is a divisive person is a divisive person. They, They are always going to be that way. So it's a really important idea that we keep inside of our mind. But the person who merely holds to an unorthodox view uh, is, is different. A person who holds to an unorthodox view should be governed by Christian charity. Did you know this? You know why you need to govern them by Christian charity? Because you were governed by Christian charity when you thought a bunch of doodle ideas. You were, you were given charity when you were out in left field somewhere. And we need to make sure that we're careful with this idea of heresy or this idea of divisiveness. Are there people who are heretics and divisive people? Yes. Should we deal with them? Yes. But that step, getting to there, is a cautious step. Uh, and I think we, we need to learn uh, what steps we need to take before we get there. The unorthodox person needs to be governed by passages like James 1, five and six. If you have your Bibles, turn with me there. James chapter one, verses five and six. Here's what the brother of Jesus says. He says, "But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him." James 1. Verse 5. Now look at verse 6. But he must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Two things that I want you to see right here. Number one, a divisive person is not of Christ. We learned that last week. They're not of Christ. But the person who is of Christ is believing. They're a person of faith. Now, if they want wisdom, here's how we'll know it. They'll ask by faith. They'll ask God, they'll, they'll genuinely be humble enough to seek God and be enlightened or be grown inside of their, uh, their Christian practice. Okay, So we have to understand that they're a person of faith. The second thing that you have to see is that in Scripture, uh, those, who are, those who are of an unorthodox view as well as those who are heretics, are often driven and tossed by the wind. That phrase is referring to phony doctrines, false doctrines that come along down the pike. And so the one who is of faith needs to, and lacking wisdom needs to ask God for that wisdom. He needs to do so or she needs to do so in faith knowing that God will give them what they ask for. And this... Uh, prevents them from being led astray. It prevents them from going this way and that way with every new idea that comes down the pike. We live in the 21st century, and over the last 200 years, there have been some really obscure philosophies that have been developed in in what would be a modern time. And these obscure philosophies are leading people deeply astray. Jehovah's Witness ideas, Mormon ideas. They're leading people deeply astray. They're, they're new. They're completely unorthodox and very new. And they just slightly twist it. My dad used to tell me all the time when I was a kid, he said, the devil's never gonna uh, get, never going to fool you, Nathan, with a $3 bill. Why? Because there's no such thing as a $3 bill. I know when that something is fake that doesn't exist. But the devil is going to try to uh, lead you astray by giving you something that sounds just enough right, but pulls you to the wrong way of thinking, So James one, five and six is the person or is what needs to govern somebody who has this unorthodox view. They need to be a person humble enough to seek god 's wisdom. Ephesians chapter four, verses two and six, and i 'm going to spend a little bit of time in Ephesians four, so you can go ahead and turn there. Ephesians chapter four, verse two and six says this. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, this is for you and I. When we encounter a person of an unorthodox view, this is for you and I. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What should we be, church? We should be a humble people, a gentle people, a patient people, a tolerant people. We should be a loving people when we deal with people of unorthodox ideas. Verse 3, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How many of you know that unity requires diligence? Unity requires diligence. Verse 4, it goes on and says this, There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, but here's the, here's the kicker. One faith. One body of belief that you are to rest in. One trust in Jesus Christ. There are not a thousand versions of this. There are not many ways to God. There is one, and his name is Christ Jesus. So there's one faith, and then it says one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Second Timothy, we'll go back to Ephesians 4, so keep your space there, but 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Mark referred to this in our, in our time this morning. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You know what happens when you encounter somebody with an unorthodox view? You realize that they're ill-equipped. You know what the scripture is there to do? Equip them. And you know how we use the Scripture? We use the Scripture in a corrective manner. We use the Scripture in a reproving manner. We use the Scripture in a training manner. Many people who get offended at the church that say, don't tell me what to do, they're not of our Father, trust me. Because those who are of Jesus say, teach me His ways. Show me His life. Let me see how He would have me live. Now, we might not like it all the time. And, and what I mean by that is not that God's law is not, uh, not good and not pleasing to our hearts. But we might not like it at times because it's downright difficult. You know what you have to do in order to walk after Jesus? You have to kill your flesh every day. You have to kill your flesh every moment, if you ask my opinion. You have to kill it all the time. This is what we're supposed to do. Scripture communicates to us that we're wrong, that we need correcting, (laughs) that we need training, and that only God's righteousness is the right righteousness. Only God's way is the right way. Ephesians 4, again, verses 11 through 16. uh, Here's what... Here's what Paul says. He says, and he, Jesus, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. What is the equipping, what is the gift to the church for? What is the leadership of the church for? Verse 12 says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Now that sounds really good. We, we kind of put that in a file folder, and we just say it means what we think it means in the 21st century, to build up the church, to grow a big church, to have a great impact, uh, and, to, and to be comfortable as American Christians. But that's, that's the farthest thing from what the Apostle Paul is actually saying. He tells us that the, that the pastor and the teacher, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist are given to the church to equip the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body. And then he explains what all this means. Number one, until we all attain to unity in the faith. Do you know what is required to reach unity? Training, equipping, equipping. You cannot come to the church, hear me, I'm not accusing anybody of anything right now, but listen to me clearly. You cannot come to the church thinking you know everything. We're already in the negative, (laughs) if that's the case. God rejects the proud. He gives grace to who? the humble. We all have something to learn. So he says, until we attain to the unity of the faith, which comes through equipping, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man or woman, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the, fu- uh, the, to the fullness of Christ. Now, it's my interpretation of that, That it's not actually talking about individuals there. I think it's talking about the body of Christ, which man here would just simply mean man. It's Jesus, and we're being built up into him. He is the one. But nonetheless, all of us have a responsibility. There are individuals in this. We have a responsibility to grow in our maturity, to grow in our stature, to grow in the knowledge of the Son of God. So right there, what we're implying, whether we know it or not, we're implying that there are whacker doodle ideas about the Son of God. Don't you love that term? It's just amazing. So you just start quoting it. It's just amazing. But the idea is that if we, are not, if we are not full of our faith and full of the knowledge of the Son of God, then the truth is maybe we don't know how to articulate it, but we don't have full understandings of who Jesus is a full understanding of what he has come to do, what he expects of us. Now, if you wrote somebody off that didn't fully know Jesus right there, this would be a really sad situation. Why? Because you're dividing the body of Christ because you're uncomfortable with what they don't know. Now, can they be stubborn? Can people be stubborn with what they don't know? Come on, all y'all. Can we? Have you ever been stubborn? Some of you are lying to me. (laughs) Silence is still speaking volumes here, right? So he says, we've got to grow to a maturity. That means that there is implicit immaturity. But verse 14 and, and on down to 16 is just impressive. He says, as a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Do you know what it's like being a child inside of the kingdom of God? You're tossed to and fro. You got somebody telling you it looks this way and somebody else telling you it looks this way. But what you have is a faithful God who's telling you it's this way. He's telling you the right, the straight, and the narrow. It's beautiful. The scripture tells us that we have to rightly divide the word of truth. You know what that implies? You can wrongly divide the word of truth. And boy, oh boy, do people do it all day long. So we have to let the text speak for itself, we have to get back to God's word, we have to submit to leadership, submit to authority, and understand that what God is doing through those gifts and through those uh, provisions for the church is actually growing us out of that child-like or child-ish thinking. That's what we're supposed to do, move beyond this. So, children are moved by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. What do we do with somebody with an unorthodox view? Stamp them a heretic and send them out the door. No. No. If they're a divisive person, you deal with their division. And what they're doing. If they're a person who is immature and doesn't understand, it says to speak the truth in love. This is hard because it's far easier to just send them packing. Verse 16 For whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Here's the other thing that you don't understand about that person who's immature. One of these days, they have an important role to play in the church, and you need them. It's real easy to write them off. It's real easy to write them off. It's real easy to push them to the side and say, forget it. It doesn't matter to me. I can't stress, church. Told you I was going to be candid this morning. I cannot stress how important it is uh, to make this distinction that those who hold unorthodox views can be brothers and sisters in Christ, but those who divide people need to be dealt with, okay? And here's why. Because it's hard work to preserve unity. Why should we fight the good fight? Why should we endure with somebody who doesn't quite see it uh, the way the Scripture tells us to? Because... We're preserving unity, and preserving unity is difficult. Here's a, here's a message for all you leaders out there. I don't care if you're a leader in the church or if you're a leader at your business or you're a leader at your home. Listen, there's an idea that comes in the world today that says, if you're truly gifted in a particular area, then everything's going to come easy for you. Leading will come easy. That's the biggest load of nonsense I've ever heard in my life. That's the biggest load of nonsense. When you lead, guess what you're committing to? Pain. When you lead, guess what you're committing to? Responsibility. When you lead, guess what you're committing to? Carrying the burdens of those weaker than you. When you lead, guess what you're promising to do? Learn. (laughs) Grow. Get better at what you do. Do you realize how hard that is? It's just as hard as watching a teenager go through puberty. It's that hard, okay? And as Christians, we're watching each other go through this maturing process, and it's like, ooh, that was painful. That was painful. But it's necessary. It's necessary. It's hard work to preserve unity, but listen to me, church. It's not work at all to label somebody a heretic and walk away. You can stamp a scarlet letter on anybody. But if you're not being like Jesus, one of these days, the scarlet letter will be stamped on you. You're the problem in this crazy division. Truth is, there's far too much of this going on in some circles of the church today. And sadly, it's not even over orthodox views. Many times, it's just over ill-informed traditions. Well, we've always believed this. So what? Did the Bible say it? Grandma and Grandpa said, I don't care. I like Jesus, your grandpa might have been a whacker doodle, okay? That's as candid as I get there. It's also true that if someone is genuinely divisive or heretical, now get back to this, it's also true if someone is genuinely divisive or heretical, we tend to do nothing about them. So we, we actually have flipped this around, okay? Think about how sad the state of the church is. When we disagree... We stamp a scarlet letter and we divide from people. When there's actual danger, we say, "Who are we to judge?" What? What? Somebody says, Nathan, I, I I'm not sure I see that the same way you see it. My first response: Let's talk. Let's open our scriptures. Let's do this. Because that, to me, it's life-giving. It's a beautiful thing. And I have the fortunate uh, advantage in my life that I get to do that for a living. I get to spend that time, whether it's you over email, or whether it's you at coffee, or whatever it is, I get that opportunity. When somebody says, I disagree with you, we get to sit down and talk about it. But when somebody is dividing the church, we have a responsibility to say, "Uh, there's the door. Don't come back. What happens in the church today is somebody says, I disagree with you, we panic and say, I guess I got to go find another church. And when somebody is actually preaching false doctrine, we go, well, I don't really know. So maybe they are telling the truth. Grow up. Find out if they're telling the truth. Please stop living in immaturity. We all need to grow beyond this. We all need to let the text speak for itself and not our traditions, and not our ideas. So the church has actually got this flip-flopped, and it's such a bad situation. G.K. Chesterton pointed this out in uh, his book, Aptly, called Heretics. And uh, here's what he says. He said, the word heresy not only no longer means being wrong, it practically means being clear-headed and courageous. This was his day, okay? Turn of the century, this is his day that it was courageous to be heretical. No, it's against God to be heretical, okay? But look at this. He says the word orthodoxy not only no longer means being right, it practically means being wrong. You fundamentalist Christians. How how many of you have stopped sharing the truth of Jesus because somebody called you a bigot, A judgmental person, homophobic. How many, better question, how many of you never started preaching the gospel because you're too afraid to be called those things? You don't have to raise your hands. Trust me, I know. Because what's happened in our culture is orthodoxy has now been labeled wrong, right? And by the way, this was near 100 years ago when Chesterton wrote this 80 years ago. And guess what? It's the same today, maybe even worse. Maybe even worse. He goes on. He says, all this can mean only one thing, the one th- and one thing only. It means that people care less for whether they are philosophically right. I know, grenade in the room, but here, listen to me. There are absolutes in life. And God's word is one of them. God's word is the primary. <laughs> it's the top of all of them, right? People don't care anymore whether or not they're philosophically right. So Chesterton ends this statement with this. He says, for obviously a man ought to confess himself crazy before he confesses himself heretical. It would be better for you to call yourself a whacker doodle <laughs> than it would be for you to confess yourself as heretical. Well, I guess maybe I'm just heretical. Well, then you should stop it. Huh? There you go. How about that one? right? Unity is good, division is bad, divisive people are a problem, and they have to be dealt with, and there are absolutes in our belief system. Orthodoxy is not a bad word. Can you say that word with me? Orthodoxy. That's amazing. How about this one? This one's the more tragic uh, bad word. Fundamentalism. Fundamentalism. You know what that means. It means you believe the fundamentals. Oh, you horrible person, you. Fundamentalism. These are not bad words. Along this train of thought, though, there's something else that I want you to be aware of. That division doesn't always come at the hands of a divisive person. Sometimes it comes at the hands of just an ignorant person. I think we've all experienced this. Ignorance in what the Bible says, ignorance in how to apply God's word, all of these things. It it really does come down to immaturity. But there's hope on this one. Unlike the divisive person, there's hope. This kind, of, uh, this kind of problem can be fixed. It can be remedied. What, how does it get remedied? By people growing up, by people learning the truth, by people growing into their maturity. Sadly, what I've found uh, in, in 20 years of ministry, I started in ministry when I was 19, and I'm holding on to 39 for dear life, but too late, thanks. It's not too late. It's only two weeks away. You deal with it, Okay. But here, listen to me, listen to me. I found this, that people in their ignorance will oftentimes double down. And I want you to hear me out here. When questioned about their idea, whether it goes beyond possible, how many of you know that thousands of things are possible? But not all things are probable. Not all things are likely. So when you push somebody beyond whether or not an idea is possible into whether or not it's probable, they just refuse to change. I've heard people say, well, it could mean this, and and I'm going to stick that, and so therefore I'm justified. Well, it could mean a lot of things, but it doesn't mean that. And you need to stop believing the things that you're doing. It might be possible. It's just simply not probable. When people dig in like this, the sad thing is they aren't necessarily being divisive. Maybe they're being stubborn. That's at least what my wife told me. Uh, But uh, not about me. But that's true too, right? That's true too. But maybe they're being stubborn, but they're not being divisive. This is immaturity. I I, again I tell you this all the time as if you don't know it but maybe there's a newcomer here so here's the deal I have I have four girls all under the age of seven stubborn is common okay stubbornness is common I see it all the time don't miss what I'm about to say it's a problem in your children and you should correct their stubbornness stop letting it go you know what happens if you keep letting it go Walmart children. So uh, the idea is they're stubborn, but it's sinful, and you need to correct this. But, but stubbornness doesn't necessarily mean divisiveness. And so a stubborn person or an immature person uh, might just kind of dig in, right? But it, either, it leaves them in one of two places. Number one, having to defend their untenable position indefinitely. And by the way, when you have to keep propping up your idea, it's miserable because you can never experience life. You can't experience unity with the saints, you keep trying to push off your ideas on people. Uh, number two, another one is, uh, at some point, they they have to admit they're wrong. But hear me very clearly when I say this: the longer you hold to a wrong idea, the harder it is for you to let it go. How many of you is that true for? The longer you hold on to an idea, the harder it is for you to let it go. And let me tell you why. Because time and tradition are pearls of great price to many people. Truth needs to be the pearl of great price. And that is found in Jesus. Your time and your tradition need to be willing to be put on the altar and sacrificed for the God of truth. You must make sure that you're willing to do that. Throughout the New Testament, God's plan is a plan of unity and it is a plan of peace. And this is why it's really important for us to understand ideas of unity being good, division being bad. It's important that we recognize divisive people and and we take care of divisive people. I used an illustration last week that I want you to hear again. If there was a wolf in the sheep pen, the loving thing to do would be to get the wolf out of the sheep pen. It is not loving to just accept the wolf's views. Do you hear me? I sound like I'm talking to my daughters. I'm sorry about that. It just came over me. Dad voice came over me, right? But the idea is that we've got to be careful. Divisive people must be dealt with because we are loving and not that we're unloving for actually facing them. There are absolutes in our belief system. There's orthodoxy, and none of those things are a bad word. When we go through the book of Romans, here's what we come away with. All of these chapters communicate that God has torn down the dividing wall, the wall of separation between God and man, as well as the wall of separation between man and man. We were living in in tension with one another, and we were living opposed to God. And when he brought us into the kingdom, when he brought us into the light out of our darkness, he taught us how to love one another. This is why, church, it is vitally important that we actually patiently, lovingly, and graciously walk alongside each other. There's three things that get or three places where this is found in scripture but God says over and over that in his kingdom there is neither Jew nor Gentile neither male nor female neither slave nor free Scythian barbarian all of these concepts that, there is no separation anymore God is no respecter of persons he has offered salvation and grace to all We need to, instead of looking for things to get mad about and angry about with one another, we need to seek to understand each other. And I'm not talking political correctness nonsense. I'm talking about literally seeking to understand each other and then striving together for God, His kingdom, and His word. Amen? Amen. Those are the things that we need to be striving for. So in Romans 16, when Paul brings this great letter to a close, what is absolutely amazing is he ends with this great uh, great greeting or this great call to greeting one another. He says, have you met met Phoebe? She's she's our sister in the faith. She's a servant at a church that's nearby me while I'm writing this. He was in Corinth, and since Shreya was no more than 20 miles to the west of Corinth. He says, I want you to greet her. I want you to welcome her. He actually writes and says that he commends Phoebe. That commendation is not what we understand it to mean in the modern world today. It was was a prevention against fraud in the first century. Because there were many people who had come in and they were sowing false doctrines, winds of doctrine, all of these things into the church. And Paul said, listen, I commend to you Phoebe. She's bringing the letter I'm writing to you. You need to welcome her. You need to accept her. He goes on and talks about uh, two other famous characters in the New Testament, Priscilla and Aquila. They're a husband and wife team, okay? They're a husband and wife team, and and they're going, and they're just on mission for the kingdom of God. What they do for God's kingdom is just amazing. Both of them, it's outside of a church context, but both of them are recorded as correcting Apollos when he was... (laughs) Wackerdoodle. right? Paulos didn't have a, a, a perfectly correct view, and it says that they both came beside him, and they worked him into the right view of things. Paul tells us that these two are his fellow workers in Christ, and that they risked their life for him. He goes on and he tells all of these people, he tells us how we're su- supposed to greet a, a man named Epinetus or a woman named Mary. Epinetus was the first uh, convert to, from Asia. Mary, who worked hard for the saints. Andronicus, Junias, two men uh, that, were, that were important co-workers with Paul. And they were also fellow prisoners with Paul at one point. But Paul talks about these people, and he doesn't, he doesn't do what happens in the 21st century where he says, Hey, listen, uh, so-and-so is going to be coming over to your church. Um, here's the problems with this person. They always look at the negatives. How many of you know that? We always have a negative thing on our tongue. He tells nothing but good things about these people. He goes, These people are your brothers and sisters in Christ. You need to welcome them. You need to bring them in. These people are a part of you. He ends that, he ends this great greeting with, uh, you should greet each other with a holy kiss, and le- let's let the text speak for itself. Please don't come up and try to kiss me, okay? That, that was, this is a, a cultural thing. This isn't a, is a, a sign of affection. The, the first and second and third century churches developed it in their Christian practice that the bishops would, would actually uh, greet the, the congregants with a kiss, right? Forehead, cheek, whatever that whole idea was. But they would greet them and they would welcome them. And it was a sign that you belong to us and we belong to you. But we do this kind of thing. I, I think one scholar said it r- really well. He said, he said, we can interpret that today as greet them with a really hearty handshake. I like that. Uh, I'll keep that one, right? Maybe we're huggers. John Pryor's a hugger. Did you know this? John, I wanted to bring you out. He sent me a video this week on this. He said, I'm greeting for the first time this week, and I want to know if this is acceptable. And it was a Guinness Book of World Records attempt at the most hugs in a minute and a half or something like this. I said, go for it, man. I don't, (laughs) you know, I'm really greet each other with a Holy John hug, right? This is the way it goes. But this is what we're called to. And so the best way that I knew to conclude this great trek through the book of Romans is to end it with the same bookend that Paul started it with. And that is a call to unity, a call to peace, a call to loving each other. You know when we're going to need to employ this? We're going to need to employ this when people have faulty views. We're going to need to employ this when somebody sins against us. We're going to need to employ this in many areas of our life. And we need to do so with gentleness. We need to do so with patience. We need to do so with love. Amen? Amen. Right? You understand what I'm getting at here. So this, if this is the marker of the church, it creates for the biblically attractive church. Okay? The culture says that the attractional model church is big lights and fancy stuff and cool you know, series and this and this, do you know what will attract the church? Brotherly love, an evidence that looks just like the Savior we serve. What will attract the world is when they see us looking just like our King. That's what will attract the world. You know why? Because if they go to these attractional model places, they're going to be let down at some point. Many pastors have said it over time. Charles Spurgeon probably said it best. Uh, he said that, that we are here to, to preach and to teach and to train the sheep of God, not to entertain the goats. But sadly, that's what we do. We're an entertainment-driven culture, and entertainment-driven church. It's led to celebrity pastor status. It's led to worshiping people. And that is never, never, never an orthodox view <laughs> Right? What should happen is we should come in and we should worship one and one alone. Whose name is Jesus. Who cares so deeply for us that he died for your sin. He died when your views were unorthodox. He died when you didn't see him for who he was. What, what, what should we do for those around us? Lay down our lives. We should care for them deeply. So I want to challenge you today to this. I want to call you to something far better, far greater in the church. Are we going to deal with divisive people? Are we going to deal with views that are unorthodox? You can mark my words today. We will deal with them. You can trust that that is exactly who I am as a person, and I'm not afraid of it. But I also want you to know that we're going to take every precaution to go into every scenario, every situation, with the most amount of love that we can. Why? Because I don't want to be the divisive person. I don't want to be the cause of splintering and fracturing. The last thing that I'll leave you with is is those of you who've been with this church for a very long time. I look around last week, I looked around the week before, and I looked around today. And I was overwhelmed by something really amazing. And that is, God has been faithful to this church. We, those of you who have been with us since the beginning, we faced some really rough times, right? We face times of expressed division inside of this church. And God will not let his church fall. He will not let us falter. He has been faithful, amen? So what's amazing about this is as we move forward, we're going to see this in practice. We're going to live this out. We're going to be loving with one another. We're going to be patient with one another. We're going to lay down our lives for one another. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at PiercePoint.org for more information.